We're going to start our, our prayer focus for the month of July. We'll be praying for our nation, praying for America. Um, I forgot to make a handout today to give out to you, but I'll have them made and put out on Sunday morning. Can see anyone wants one of those? Uh, one of the reasons we're going to pray for America is because more and more, as we look at the nation, as we look at what's going on, it seems our country has has and is embraced the spirit of Antichrist. Now, by spirit of Antichrist, I'm not talking about necessarily the Antichrist who will come into the world in the book of Revelation in the last days. I'm talking about the spirit of Antichrist the Apostle John warns us about, which apparently I didn't put up on the screen either. So, who knows what's going to happen when we go through here today. Uh, spirit of Antichrist, 1 John 4, 3, says every spirit that does not confess uh, Jesus is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. So what John is telling us is there is and always has been and always will be a spirit in the world which is against Christ. This spirit influences people away from Jesus and even makes them hostile toward Jesus. And America seems to be embracing this spirit more and more. God's word has always warned us that the longer time went on, the more the world would become against Christ. And one way we can fight, a ba- fight back against this in our country is through prayer. And God instructs us on how to pray. So open your Bible uh, to 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 6. We're going to start uh, praying for... Um, I-, I skipped a whole part of it. I don't even know what's going on. Huh. What a day. Pray for America's leaders is what we're going to start with. First Timothy 2 verse 1 says, First of all then, I urge requests and prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, that is the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. While this passage exhorts us to pray for all people, it specifically mentions praying for our leaders and all those who are in authority. It is critical and critically important for disciples of Jesus to pray for the leaders of our government. Uh, we need to pray for our president. We pray for those who sit in the House of Representatives. We pray for our senators, the congressmen, our state, national, uh, and our local leaders. Pastor Chuck Smith says the real purpose of government is to preserve good. This is based on Romans 13. That's the purpose of government, the preservation of good. And all laws should be designed for the preservation of good because there are evil influences and powers and government is actually ordained for the purpose of fighting evil, preserving the good. And when a government is no longer fulfilling that function, the evil that they allow will ultimately destroy that government. Just study your history books and you'll see it's true over and over again. Most governments begin with a high ideal of preservation of good, but in time, corrupt forces move in. The laws were liberalized where the good was no longer being preserved, but evil was being allowed, then evil was being tolerated, and then evil was being protected by the law. And the next thing was that the evil overthrew the government. Now, that's very much what we see going on in our country right now. Evil is protected, 
and evil is called good. Good is being attacked and good is being called evil. So we need to pray for the leaders of our nation. We pray for leaders according to God's word so that we can live a a tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. Right. So we pray for our leaders so they will lead, govern and enforce laws in ways which promote peace, godliness, unity and freedom. Right. We don't pray for our political agenda or our political ideology to advance. We pray for our leaders so we can freely live out our lives and our devotion to Jesus. We see in verse three that this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior, the this that's good and acceptable is praying for our leaders of our nation. So we always please God when we pray for our leaders, when we take the time and pray for them. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to take time and pray for them. Uh, again, the handout that I should have had has President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, the Supreme Court, John Roberts, Clarence Thomas, Stephen Breyer, Samuel Alito, Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, Neil Gorsh, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Barrett. And as we pray for them, there's a list of things uh, that will be in the handout on, on Sunday. Pray for them to be God-fearing and recognize they are accountable to God for each and every decision and act. I think that's a huge thing for our, our leaders to understand. I think politi- politics, politics and the power it gives breeds corruption. Uh, I don't think it makes the corruption. I think it allows them to live out what's already in their hearts. They were already corrupt. And being in political power gave them the ability to act on that corruption. And and they need to be God-fearing because one day they're going to stand before the Lord God Almighty and they're going to give an account for how they've used the, the leadership and the power that they've been given. Pray for them to be granted wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Right? They, we want them to make godly decisions, wise and godly decisions. Uh, when they make wise and godly decisions, we want those decisions to prosper And when they make foolish and ungodly decisions, we want those to be frustrated and not come to pass. Pray they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus if they're unsaved. If they are born again disciples of Jesus, they would be strengthened and encouraged in their faith. I I personally cannot imagine how difficult it would be to live with integrity and faith in Jesus in in something as corrupt as, as our government system. Pray for them to recognize their own inadequacies, to pray and to seek the will of God. Pray they would value and regard the Ten Commandments and the teachings of Jesus. Pray for them to have godly counselors and God-fearing advisors. Uh, They all have people who guide them and counsel them and tell them what kind of guide them or what decisions to make. Uh, And as we saw last week, ungodly leaders, ungodly counselors lead to ungodly decisions. So we want them to have wise and godly counselors. Pray for them to be honest and faithful to their spouses and children. Pray for them to be honest in financial, tax, and ethical matters. Pray for them to be generous and have compassionate hearts for the poor and the needy. Pray they would redeem their time and know proper priorities. Pray for them to have courage to resist manipulation, pressure, and the fear of man. Right? It's one thing to resist sort of the manipulation of other senators or congressmen or others, but the fear of man, I think something that would always be on your mind is, I've got to stand before the, the, the voters again, and so to, to make bad decisions that maybe my voters would like me to make, even though I know they're wrong decisions because I'm afraid of what would happen. Uh, pray they would care more about doing what was right than being reelected. 
Pray for them to endeavor to restore the sanctity of life, to care for families, the divine order, and the morality of our nation, and to prepare for them to be prepared to give an account of Almighty God. Let them think about that often, about the fact one day they'll stand before the Lord. So let's take a few minutes right now where we are and, and pray for our leaders. Father, we love you today. You are great and wonderful. We do thank you, Lord, for your grace and goodness toward us. We thank you for the freedoms we have in our country that we can gather like this tonight. And, Lord, we're not afraid of the police coming in. We're not afraid of being tossed in jail because we're here gathered in your name, looking at your word and crying out to you openly. Lord, we do pray for our nation. Lord, as we look around, clearly people are beginning to follow the Antichrist spirit. How the people are hard against what's true and right. They are calling evil good and and good evil. And Lord, we know we can't fix that. We know our politicians can't fix that. Lord, it doesn't matter who's going to win the midterms. It doesn't matter who's going to win the next presidential election. Lord, human hearts can't be turned by political leaders. So we look to you. And even though that's the case, Lord, we still pray for our political leaders according to your word. We pray for President Biden that he would have wise and godly counselors. We pray that they would give him wise and godly advice. And Lord, when he makes wise and godly decisions, let those prosper, let them go well. And when he makes unwise, foolish and ungodly decisions, frustrate them and let them not come to pass. Pray for our Supreme Court that they would they would make good decisions. They would make just judgments. Help all of our our congressmen in the state and the national levels. Father, make them understand, Lord, they are accountable to a God in heaven, a just and a holy God. And where they have abused their power, where they have manipulated and done evil, there will be a severe and a swift judgment brought upon them. Guide our nation with the, the division and the strife. Help us, Lord, as disciples of Jesus, not to be a part of making that worse. Let us be peacemakers, as your word has said we ought to be. Got our troops. Keep them safe. Let them always act the honor befitting the jobs they have and the names they carry. Bring them home safely. We ask in the mighty name of Christ, our Savior. 
Amen. Next thing we want to pray for is we're going to pray for the salvation of our nation. Pray for America's salvation. And what I'm going to do in the next few minutes is lay a, the foundation of what I would call the posture of our prayer as we pray for America. Not, not as much the content of our prayer, though that's some, but the attitude of our hearts as we pray. And to understand why our hearts should have the attitude we have, we have to kind of look at some of what the Old Testament tells us about who God is and what God is like. The prophet Habakkuk wrote, Lord, I've heard the report about you and I was afraid. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In anger, remember mercy. There's three essential parts to this passage. We're only going to look at two of them tonight. And the two parts, the first and the last, are the parts of what should make up the, the foundation of our posture or attitude as we pray for our nation. But the first phrase Habakkuk uses is, I've heard the report about you, and I was afraid. Habakkuk was a student of God's Word, and he knew what God had said in the past, and he knew what God had done in the past. Knowing what God had said and what God had done brought a form of awe in who God was and what God was like, but it also brought a form of terror into his heart because of who God was and what God was like. As disciples of Jesus, we too should be students of God's Word who know what God has said and who know what God has done. And if we know, truly know who God is, what He has said, what He has done, there is a form of awe at God we should have, but there should also be a kind of fear, a kind of terror we have in our hearts as we look around our country. Now, saying we should have fear as we know who God is and what God is like and what God has said and done, may sound strange because we often talk about God's Word being a comfort and encouragement to us. And to be sure, God's Word does bring comfort and encouragement. But as God's Word reveals God and who He is, what He's like, what He's said and what He's done, it should also form a kind of terror and awe at who God is and what God has said and what God has done. And let me show you why this is. The proverb writer says, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. Happy is the one who keeps the law. Now, the idea of a vision here refers to the prophetic revelation a prophet received from God as he took God's word to the people. It doesn't refer to so much the individual vision as the totality of it, the law, if you will. So what the vision refers to, it's God's message. For us today, it refers to God's word. Now notice the word unrestraint. This pictures people casting off all restraint and fully giving themselves over to their own sinful desires. So where there is no vision, where God's word is not found, or where God's word is not accepted, or where God's word is not heeded, the people there become unrestrained. They cast off all sort of moral restraint. And they begin to run wild, living simply to fulfill their own sinful desires. Now think about what it would look like if a people, not, not just a person, but the people, right? So it's, it's talking about more than one person. It's talking about a culture. Think about what it would look like in a culture where they cast off God's word. They, they did not accept it. They did not heed it. They, they did not receive it into their lives. And they cast off all restraint 
And they just gave themselves to do whatever their sinful hearts wanted. So what would that look like? What would we see in a culture who had done this? Well, we, we look at God's word again in the Old Testament. We see a lot of this. And, and we see that when people cast off God's vision, they cast off God's word, they they fight against all authority. No one's going to tell them what they can, what they can't do. They're going to be a violent people. Right? There will be wars and rumors of wars, but not just wars and rumors of war. There will be violence in the streets. There will be violence, just one person on another. That they will believe kind of might makes right. And so they will they will steal stuff. They just go into people's houses. They'll go into people's businesses and they'll take everything and anything that they want. They'll burn stuff down. They'll destroy anything they want to just for fun. Not, not for a good reason, but just because it pleases them to do it. They'll devalue human life. Right? It won't matter. They'll just kill people and it will be no more, no more significant than killing a dog or a cat. They'll demand abortions at will. We, we often think abortion is a modern thing. The reality is the ancient world knew much of abortions. And when a people had cast off restraint, they demanded abortions at will. They valued certain lives over others. Certain kinds of people, certain people were, were more important than others. Now, interesting, if you think about our culture, devaluing human life, demanding abortions at will, valuing certain lives over others. In our country, like an eagle egg is protected by law. An eagle egg, which is essentially just an unborn eagle. And, and if you intentionally destroy an eagle egg, that's like a felony. You're going to jail and you're going to be fined significantly. You, you cannot destroy an unborn eagle. But an unborn human is a clump of cells. And the culture demands the right to destroy that clump of cells at will for any reason at any point during the pregnancy. A culture that has thrown off restraint would be sexually immoral. They would be greedy. They would be selfish. They would minimize or eliminate the idea of God's judgment. Again, might would make right, so they would oppress the weak and the powerless. They would hate people who are ethnically or culturally or socially different. Again, all of this, as we look at our culture, should sound very, very familiar. We see all of those things every single day in America. Our culture is filled with those things constantly. So much so that we don't even think much about it because we're numb to it because it's so common. But these are what it looks like when a culture has cast off God's word and thus cast off restraint. Now, what do you think happens in a culture 
after they cast off God's Word and they cast off the restraining power of God's Word and they begin to run wild. What, what does God do in a culture that continually rejects Him and casts His Word off and casts off the restraint of His Word? Well, the Word gives us the answer. Psalm 81. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk according to their own plans. So, God's people are rebelling. And God speaks through the prophets, through His law, and He tries to call the people back. Don't do these things that I hate. But they didn't listen. And they didn't obey Him. In fact, they just did not want anything to do with God at all. So what does God do? He gives them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk according to their own plans. He gives them over to the stubbornness of their heart to to live by their own lusts, to live by their own counsels, by their own plans, by their own ideas. In, In essence, God says, you don't want the restraining power of my word. You don't want to listen to me. And he removes his hands and says, have it your way. Do what you want to do and see how that works out for you. So what would it look like then if God took away his hand and he gave people over to the stubbornness of their own hearts to walk according to their own plans? Well, again, when we look at the Old Testament, we find that when God did this, they they fought against all authority. They were violent and they assaulted people for no reason. They stole stuff. They destroyed stuff. They devalued human life. They demanded abortions at will. They valued certain lives over others. They were sexually immoral. They were greedy. They were selfish. They minimized or eliminated the idea of God's judgment. They oppressed the weak and the powerless. They hated people who were ethnically or culturally or socially different. So a culture who casts off the restraint of God's word will eventually be given over by God to just live in that unrestrained mess that they want to live in. And his doing this is a form of judgment. It is God removing his restraining hand from a people and allowing A measure of judgment to fall upon them by not restraining them any longer. But this isn't just an Old Testament idea. We see it in the New Testament as well. Turn to Romans 1, verse 18. Page 857, if you have a pew Bible. We don't have time tonight to read all of it. We'll just kind of hit some highlights. But verses 8, Romans 1, 18 through 32 lays out what happens when a culture rejects God's Word. When they reject God, when they cast off the restraint of His Word and, and want to do their own thing. And God removes His hand from them. Verse 18, we see that it starts with wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Right, So this passage... Everything we see in this passage is about God's wrath being revealed 
or being allowed or being poured out. And it's not on a person as much as it is a culture. A culture who has cast off the restraint of his word. A a culture who rejects God. So what does the rejection of God look like? Well, we see in verse 20 and 21, they, the, they reject the revelation of God. Look at verse 20 and 21. For since the creation of this world, His invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their reasoning, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Right, so this is the beginning of where the rejection comes from. God's Word has told us who God is and what God is like. God's Word has told us what God's standards for morality are, what God's expectations for salvation is, how, how to be saved, what God has done. And, and the culture then, again, not a person, but, but a culture just decides they don't like that. They don't like a God who's sovereign. They don't like a God who has wrath. They don't like a God who says only the path of His Son leads to salvation. They don't like a God who says this is absolutely right for all people and this is absolutely wrong for all people. And and so they come up with all of this other stuff. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. They just reject that. And the futile reasonings and their senses, their hearts are darkened. Right? So... They begin to darken their minds by rejecting God. Verse 22, they, they claim to be wise, but they become fools. And what makes them become fools? Verse 23, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, of birds, of four-footed animals, crawling creatures. Um, if you look also at verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a falsehood, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. So, after they reject God, the revelation of God, they, they don't just live in a vacuum. They then come up with something else. These man-made ideas about God, or it doesn't even have to be about Yahweh, it can be. But it can be just man-made ideas where they end up worshipping nature, right? Notice they worship birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. It could be where they exalt humanity as the top. And we worship kind of our own selves and our desires. For they also begin to worship the form of corruptible man. They worship and serve the creature. They, They say that really, if there is a God, He would just want us to be happy and do what pleases us. And that's what a God would want. And if a God doesn't want that, he's not worthy of really being God. And so they make up their own idea of who God is and what God is like. Or they make up their own idea about what is God. So this is what a culture does. They cast off the restraint of God's word. They reject the revelation of who God is and what God is like. Then they replace God's revelation of Himself with their own ideas about God. What are the consequences of a culture who does this? Look at verse 24. Therefore, right? 
What's the therefore? Because they exchanged the glory of incorruptible God for the image of corruptible man. God gave them up to vile impurity and the lusts of their hearts so their bodies would be dishonored among them. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And then it talks about degrading passions for the women exchange the natural relationships for that which is contrary to nature. And likewise, men to abandon the natural relations with women, burn their desire toward one another, males with males, committing shameful acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And then verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. God did this. God did Psalm 81. He took away His hand of protection. They didn't want God. They wanted their own ideas about God. They didn't want His Word. They wanted their own ideas about His Word and what was right and what was wrong. And so God takes away His hand and He lets them go and live however they want to live to give themselves over to their desires. Now, how does a culture respond to this? Do they respond in fear and awe? Man, we have made a mistake. We must turn back to God. Because God has just allowed this to run rampant. Because the picture in this passage really is... When you see these things in such an abundance in your culture to where they're natural, it's not God's judgment is coming on the culture. It's God's judgment has fallen on the culture. When you see a culture who has rejected the revelation of God, they do this claiming to be wise. They do this exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of corruptible things. They live in degrading passions. They live in the impurity of their hearts. They live in a depraved mind. They're filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. When you see all of those things in exceeding abundance in your culture, judgment is not coming. Judgment has fallen. God has already given that culture over to a debased mind. So how does the culture respond? How does a debased culture respond to being God taking his hand away? Look at verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of of death, of judgment, they not only do the same, But they approve of those who practice them. They celebrate their lack of restraint. They celebrate living according to their own lusts. They celebrate living according to their own counsels, their own plans, their own ideas. They celebrate the level of depravity in the culture and call it freedom. They call it pride. They call it living your truth. Now, again, I don't know about what you see. 
when you look at America. But I see Romans 1, 18 through 32 being lived out on the regular. Every aspect of what we see there is on display in pop and popular music. It is on display on every channel on the television. It is on display in every movie that comes out. It is on display on social media. It is on display in the culture. It is on display. We see this everywhere in our culture. And we're not, this isn't just now happening. God isn't about to take his hand away. If this passage is right, God has already given our culture up largely to this. The culture is going to celebrate this. The culture is going to continue to to be proud, to rejoice in their depravity and iniquity. But as disciples of Jesus, what are we to do? How are we to respond? We, We can't respond like they do. We can't celebrate pride. We can't say, live your truth. We, we can't or we run the risk of rejecting the re- revelation of God, replacing the revelation of God and God giving us as individuals over. So what do we do? Well, we go back to Habakkuk. And in anger or other translations say in in wrath, remember mercy. We pray is what we do. And we pray in the posture and the attitude Habakkuk talks about there. We plead for God's mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Right now, America is for sure getting what it deserves. After years and years of casting off restraint, saying we want nothing to do with God, rejecting God's revelation of himself, replacing God's revelation with man-made ideas, going headlong into depravity and celebrating it as a good thing, God has allowed us as a culture to run wild, to fulfill our own lusts, To live by our own counsels, plans, and ideas. God has allowed our nation to reap what we have surely sown. This is why we plead for mercy. This is why we pray with a posture of humility. America and American Christians, we do not have a right To go for God and say, God, we're such a good country. We've done so many wonderful things. You should spare us because of that. We don't have that. We come humbly before God, acknowledging this is what our nation deserves, but still pleading for the mercy and the grace of God, saying, God, yes, our nation is wicked. And given to it. And rejoices in it. And yes, God help us. In many cases, the churches has just jumped in and celebrated with everyone else. 
But please, God, in your anger, in your wrath, remember to be merciful. Let us recognize our nation's desperate need for mercy and plead with God to show us mercy. We, as conservative, evangelical, American Christians have banked on the idea that America is a Christian nation and it would never get to the precipice of these things happening. But that is an illusion. If there was ever a time when America was a Christian nation, it is not now. America is a nation given over to depravity. America is a nation that calls evil good and good evil. America is a nation that celebrates what God calls abominable. And as American, conservative American evangelical Christians, we must recognize where we are as a country. We must Stop with the idea that America would never go down the depravity spiral and say this is where we are. Dear God, have mercy on our nation. So I I want us to pray now for mercy. And I want us to, as many as can, come to the altars to pray. Of course, pray where you are if you can't. just want you to pray. We're going to spend some time Asking God to spare our nation. To grant us repentance. To give us mercy. Let's pray.
the good news in all of this is our God is abundantly merciful. Let me read to you from Psalm 81. But my people did not listen to my voice and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their own hearts to walk according to their own plans. Here's the rest of the passage. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. Those who hate the Lord would pretend to obey Him and the time of their punishment would be forever. But I would feed you, the formerly rebellious people, the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. When we pray for God to be merciful, we're praying to an abundantly merciful God. A God who is rich in mercy, who is great in love, and He loves the people of our country. The people. He loves the lost people. He loves those who are celebrating the pride. He loves those who are demanding abortions. He he loves them. Jesus has died for them. And if the people of God would begin to cry out for God's mercy, cry out in absolute confidence that we serve a merciful God, a rich in mercy, with a great love that has loved us, we would see, I believe, God begin to work on our behalf and turn the tide. There is one constant throughout God's word. It is not only that God is willing to show mercy, that God desires to show mercy. He looks for people who are standing in the gap, praying for the people so that he can withhold judgment and show mercy. Let's be those people. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and glorious. You are wonderful and worthy. Be merciful, Father, to our nation. Be merciful, Father, and grant repentance unto life to many of those who are now celebrating what you would call sin. Father, be merciful and grant repentance to many of those who are weeping and gnashing of the fact they might not be able to kill their unborn child at will. Be merciful and grant repentance to those who have made millions and millions of dollars off the abortion industry. Be merciful and grant repentance to those who shout about their hatred of God and their rejection of Jesus Christ. Many of those fall into these categories are people I know, people I love. Be merciful, God. Grant them repentance, I pray in the name of Jesus, my Savior. Amen.